0: I just also went way beyond seven drafts because every time I went through it, I found a way to make it better, and I found a way to make it more succinct, and I found a way to say what I wanted to say in a richer, deeper, clearer way.
1: Welcome to the book I had to write. I'm Paul Zakshavsky. Not an episode goes by without someone commenting on the great production value for the show. And while I'm totally flattered, I really can't take credit for that. That belongs to the show's producer, Cherie Newman. She's a sound wizard extraordinaire. For 12 years, Cherie worked at Montana Public Radio where she created and hosted the show, The Right Question. She also did hundreds of other programs, stories, and podcasts. She's a writer, musician, and former pet sitter. In fact, during the pandemic, when most of her freelance income disappeared, she fell back on critter sitting. That's when she discovered it was really not the side hustle of her dreams. There were unruly pets and often unrulier clients. On top of that, there was all the changes that were happening to her hometown of Bozeman, Montana. Suddenly, the place was being overrun by wealthy people snapping up homes and changing the economy for everyone. These are the twin storylines in Cherie's debut memoir, Other People's Pets, Critters, Careers, and Capitalism in Yellowstone Country. In this interview, we also talk about what she learned by writing every day for 90 minutes. And we also explore her journey through publishing. She got her book out in record time. You can find out more about Cherie at magpieaudioproductions.com or CherieWrites.com. You'll find both of those in the show notes. I learned a ton from Cherie's approach to both writing and publishing, and I hope you will too. Well, welcome Cherie.
0: I'm really excited to have you on the show. Well, thank you. I'm very pleased to be here.
1: You're kind of getting the view from the other side, as it were. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I could start us off by asking why this book Other People's Pets, was the book that you wanted, that you felt like you had to write?
0: Oh, definitely. I had to write it because all my friends demanded that I write it. I would go to dinner and they'd be asking me about, you know, what I was doing with my pet sitting. And I would start telling them stories and they would just say, you have to write these, you have to write a book about this. And finally, I said, okay, I will.
1: So many of the chapters in the book, listeners will have heard that, the, you know, the book uh, partly covers your uh, years doing pet sitting or critter sitting. And a lot of the humor that comes out in the book is based on the fact that these pets often misbehave and they misbehave in specific ways, which is that they often behave differently than their owners tell you that they're going to behave. And uh, one of my favorite moments comes uh, early on in the, the food or fury chapter with a chocolate lab named Patrick who won't eat what he's supposed to and then becomes a, just a little bit more aggressive than you're told he'll be. I'm wondering if there are any specific pets that you've looked after that even after these few years really stick with you.
0: Mm, there are so many. I I kind of came away from this year of intense pet sitting with a little bit of PTSD, I think, because I did it almost full time. And I had never done that before. Before, I had just taken care of people's pets, mostly friends, and a couple people who hired me. But this time, I was a contractor. And I was at someone else's house taking care of someone else's pets. Three weeks, three and a half weeks out of the month living in someone else's house, it's 24-7. You're on duty all the time. So I came away feeling very, very stressed out about this, even though I enjoy animals. I enjoy them a lot, but these animals didn't behave the same way when their people were gone, and... There were a lot of different kinds of animals, mostly dogs, but everything from tiny dogs to German shepherds and labradoodles. Some of the animals would run away. Some of them, (laughs) like Patrick that you're talking about, would see another dog coming down the sidewalk and just go nuts and lunge and growl and bark and act like he wanted to kill the other dog or the person they were with. And of course, it freaked the people out. It freaked me out. I could hardly hold on to him. And then there was a little King Charles Spaniel, I believe they're called. I was trying to do some freelance work at a kitchen counter, and this dog kept scratching at my leg, Then I couldn't figure out why. And then she started pooping on the floor and peeing on the floor, even right after she'd been outside. She started eating shoes. She started doing all these (laughs) terrible things. (laughs) I found out by doing some internet research, because I had never taken care of a dog like this before, that this dog needs to sit on people's laps all the time. That's why I had to write a whole book, because I can tell you all of these stories.
1: I mean, obviously something drew you to pet sitting to start with. And um, in the book, I think it's one of the clients calls you the dog whisperer which is um a, mm-hmm. a great title. I mean what drew you originally to pet sitting? What what did you see in it?
0: I love animals and I especially love dogs and I've had several dogs in my life a black lab for 15 years and she went everywhere with me. She went to my band gigs with me. She went to work with me whenever it was permitted and most of the time I didn't take jobs unless she could go to work with me. I just love dogs. And I feel like I have an intuitive connection with most of them. So I've always been happy to take care of my friends, dogs and cats.
1: But then as when the pandemic hit, and this is a big part of your book, of course, you decided to focus on critter sitting more exclusively. Can you tell me about that change? Why did that happen?
0: That happened because I was doing a lot of podcast editing at the time in 2020, Most of my podcasts came from live events, so other people were recording live events and then sending me the audio, and when everything shut down, all of a sudden, I had no work. I had a couple of clients who kind of transitioned to online interviews as much as they could, but I only had a couple of clients instead of five or six clients like I used to have. So my income dropped precipitously, which is why when I started getting calls and referrals for pet sitting, I thought, sure, why not? <laughs> it was good money and I needed to build my business back up in a different way. So that's why I started doing it almost full time.
1: So the flip side or I'd say the the additional story to your going into pet sitting more full time is also the changes that you start to see happening to your home state and your and your home city of Bozeman, Montana. And it's really I would say one of the biggest socioeconomic stories to come out of the pandemic period, which is just that the way that the country became even more bifurcated, economically speaking, than it was before. Mm -hmm. So you saw rich people uh, everywhere leaving big cities, (laughs) moving out to the country. Mm -hmm. And um, it happened here where I live in Santa Barbara. Obviously, it happened probably even more so where you are in Bozeman. Can you tell me about the ways that you saw your hometown change in those few years?
0: Yes. And, and it didn't take years. It was immediate. So the pandemic really hit everybody hard like March 2020. In Bozeman, by June of 2020, so we're talking two, three months, real estate prices had doubled in Bozeman mm-hmm. almost overnight. And people were moving in so fast let's say somebody wanted $400,000 for a house, it would go on the market and it would sell within 24 hours for cash for 500000 And it just kept going up and up and up. People were moving here so fast that there was no place for anybody to live. We started getting, for the first time, rows and rows of RVs parked on streets that were near places that were going to be subdivisions but weren't yet, and it was just insanity. There was one guy who wanted to buy a house. He had $500,000 pre-approved by the bank, and he couldn't find a house to buy because he and his wife put in 20 offers on 20 houses, and every single time someone from out of state, Sorry to say it, out-of-state people, I'm sure you're very nice, <laughs> but someone from out-of-state swooped in with cash and bought the place before they could fill out paperwork or do anything. He finally went out onto the street with a homemade cardboard sandwich sign, and at the end of October, it's, it's kind of cold around here in Bozeman, Montana, and he's out there on the street with his sign begging someone to sell him a house. And he was out there for weeks, and finally, someone with a a situation where they, I think someone in the family had died, and so they had a house for sale, and they found him and sold him the house for what was then under market value because they could have sold that house for a lot more money, but they chose to sell it to him because he and his wife were about to have a baby. I mean, there are just stories like that going on all over this valley, which is called the Gallatin Valley. And those of us living here were just watching it going, holy cow, they were building as fast as they could. And the prices have leveled out a little bit. It's still nuts, and there's a lot of animosity between people who've lived here for a long time and people who've moved in, and you don't really want to drive around here with a California license plate on your car.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
0: Californians get blamed even though people came from everywhere.
1: Well, Kevin Cosner, the star of Yellowstone, lives here, Californian, so (laughs) perhaps he's to blame.
0: Oh, the show Yellowstone is... I will just say it, it has no basis in reality. I watched a few episodes of it when it first came out and I just, I couldn't even stand it because it was so unrealistic and so dark. I mean, that's not how we are here <laughs> in Montana. We're we're not anything like what's going on on the show.
1: I mean, I really feel like your book did a, an amazing job of kind of juggling both this personal story that you have around pet sitting and showing how it really comes out of this larger economic story. And even though I know a lot of people don't want to be dealing with the pandemic anymore and they want it behind them, the truth is, like as you're saying, That the effects of it are still like all around us.
0: Exactly. And one of the things that I bring up in my book, which I think is really important, is that when non native people first came along, you know, they found gold, they found lots of good pasture land they decided to be farmers or whatever hey there's all this land and it's free and you know never mind the people already living here but it got dubbed the treasure state because there was gold and copper and silver and garnets sapphires and things but the only people who profited from that took all the treasures and took all the money and went somewhere else and built great big houses and The people in Montana never really got to benefit from that. Not very many of them anyway. And certainly the Native people were on the (laughs) short end of the stick. And then in the 70s or 80s, William Kittredge, a very famous regional writer, started calling Montana the last best place. And a lot of writers discovered Western Montana Thomas McGuane, Richard Brodigan, a whole bunch of very famous writers. And so it got this moniker, The Last Best Place. But it's the last best place only if you already came here with money or if you took the natural resources and made yourself rich and left the miners and the native people and whoever else worked for you, left them very poor and sick, from the work they had to do. So it's a state with a a history that is glamorized on TV and in the movies, and it's just not reality for those of us who've lived here for a long time.
1: So I wanted to ask you about the journey of writing this book. Was this book something that you had been working on for a while?
0: No. I set myself a goal to write 90 minutes a day, a minimum of 90 minutes a day for 90 days. And I started on February 28th of 2023. And 83 days later, I had a first draft, which I sent to you. And there were lots of those days where I wrote many more than 90 minutes. Some days I would write for four or five hours. The stories were fresh in my mind. The emotions were still running high. And I had these stories to tell and my friends wanted to read them. And it just kind of flowed out of me. So no, I had not written one word of this book until I sat down to write it
1: had you been doing um i mean that's an incredible commitment to writing had have you been working on other books or previous projects before this
0: a few years ago i started just writing down stories about my early life that i thought i would leave for my daughter someday her name is devon and i titled the book dear devon and i wrote about 250 pages of stories to my daughter but I decided, too personal, I'm not ready to tell those stories to the world. I will and have left them for my daughter. But I didn't really want to go that deep in, into my personal life to publish a book. So I set that aside. And when I officially started my audio production business which is called magpie audio productions and i put up a website and i and i got really committed to that then i started writing blog posts so i've now scraped all those blog posts together into a second book which will be published shortly and many years ago i started writing a book about some experiences that i had in radio production when i was interviewing a lot of famous authors But I couldn't figure out how to make that book go in the direction I wanted it to go. And so with other people's pets, I felt like I finally got to the point where I had coherent stories to tell. But once I got the first draft done, it was still kind of a mess, even though the the stories were all there. I was mixing backstory way too much with current stories. And so I sent that draft to you And you told me how to fix it. (laughs) (laughs) And it was the best thing that I ever did was sending that draft to you because you took a look at it. You didn't know me. You didn't know my story. You knew I was a podcast editor and that's about it. It's about all you knew about me. And so I felt like if someone who didn't know anything about me could read my stories, they would have a perspective that no one else would have. I could have sent it to friends, but friends knew too much about me. So I thought it was really important to have someone who didn't know me read it. And it's it's exactly what the book needed. Once you told me how to proceed, sure, I did a bunch of rewrites after that. But I knew where I was going after I got feedback from you.
1: I mean... I feel like you fix my episodes, and so I helped fix your book. It feels like a fair exchange. (laughs) I want to pick up on something you just said, which is that you did several drafts of this book. You have a blog post where you mention one of the previous guests on this show, Alison K. Williams, and her book, Seven Drafts. The idea there is that one should write several drafts, seven of them, because you can focus on a different element of your book each time, and you don't have to keep all the things in your head at once. It sounds like you took that advice, but even further, because you you did more than seven drafts. Can you tell me a bit more about that process?
0: Yes. Every time I reread the book, intending to, you know, like fix the narrative or shape the narrative or fix something technical... I kept rewriting because I would think of something else I wanted to say or I would look at a paragraph and think that has 150 words in it and I could probably say that in 100 words or whatever. I mean, I did pay attention to her seven drafts, but I just also went way beyond seven drafts because every time I went through it, I found a way to make it better. And I found a way to make it more succinct. And I found a way to say what I wanted to say in a richer, deeper, clearer way. And so for me, it was like sculpting, maybe. I could use that as an example. Maybe somebody wants to create a statue out of marble. And they're chiseling away and chiseling away. And, and it gets more beautiful and more beautiful as they take away more and more of the stone. For me, I found that my book and my uh, what I wanted to say got more and more beautiful when I took out words. (laughs) And in order to take out words, you have to read it and press the delete key. (laughs) So that was... (laughs) And then when I would press the delete key, then I might think of something else I wanted to add. I felt like I was... Making a sculpture with words, I guess i've I've never said that before or thought it until this minute. but as as I'm thinking about it, that's that's what it felt like.
1: So there'll be listeners for to this episode who, like you, are first time authors working, they'll be working on their first books. I'm wondering if you could tell me what was maybe most challenging to you about working on this first book?
0: Um, doing at least ninety minutes a day. Because anybody who's ever written anything knows that you start writing it and then you get to the point where you go, Oh man, this is crap <laughs> Why am I doing this? And so there were some times when it would be seven thirty at night and I still hadn't done my ninety minutes, but because I had this little chart on the wall and I was making I was ticking off every day as I went along, and I, when I commit to something, I do it, and so I committed to those 90 days, and I committed to those 90 minutes, and I wasn't going to let bad self-confidence defeat me, I guess is the way I might explain it, so getting myself started writing every day was the most difficult part. Once I got going, I, I lost track of time, and I loved it, You know, and I would work to the point I would set my timer for 90 minutes. And then a lot of times I would write far beyond 90 minutes. So for me, just getting started is always the most difficult part.
1: You and me both. (laughs) (laughs) In a blog post you wrote recently, uh, you mentioned the fact that when you published this memoir, folks came out of the woodwork to tell you that they had great ideas for books. And what did you think about writing their books? And so I'm curious about (laughs) (laughs) you know where I'm going with this. What did you make a request like that?
0: I just said no, sorry, I can't write your book. I have 20 books of my own I want to write, but and I listened to my mother say this for the uh, let's see, I guess it was probably about the last 30 years of her life. After she retired, she was always going to quote write something end quote. And I was always waiting for her to write something, and she never did. And then I got older and she died, and I thought, do I wanna be like close to death and saying, oh, I, I meant to write something, but I didn't. And the only reason I didn't is just because I didn't. So that's why I set myself that goal. But yeah, there I, I found out, and you probably experienced this too, Everybody you talk to has something, they've got a novel in them or a memoir or, you know, they want to be a, a writer for some reason. I don't know why we all want to write so badly, but a lot of people do and they just don't because it's not easy. I wonder how long I'll be able to do this. I'm not a young person. Even though I've done my best to stay healthy and strong, my body's natural loss of muscle mass and agility during the past five years is noticeable. Maybe wrestling with dogs on leashes is the cause of my shoulder pain. Lack of sleep is also an issue. The calendar on my phone shows that I've slept in my own bed only six of the last 30 nights. Lately I've resorted to swallowing Ambien and over-the-counter sleep aids, which help me get to sleep, but they have side effects – brain fog and lethargy. I ask myself almost every day why I continue to do work that damages my body and brain. Oh right, (laughs) money.
1: So I wanted to change gears and ask you about your publishing journey. I feel like the whole landscape with publishing has really changed so much in the past couple decades. In addition to like big five publishers and smaller traditional presses, there's also been the rise of self-publishing, hybrid publishing, micro presses. And so I wondered if you could walk us through your publishing journey because you decided to go in a really interesting direction.
0: I considered all options and I researched everything from, you know, getting an agent who would then pitch my book to a big house to working with a smaller house that would take an unagented query to working with a very small publisher and once I did all of my research I realized My book was a little bit time sensitive, so most of the action took place in the year 2022. And I was looking at publishers who wouldn't even start working on the project until 2025. And I decided I didn't want to do that. And so then I started looking at places that printed your book and got it to the distributor, but then you had to do all your own marketing and then my research told me and the conversations that i had with authors for 10 years when i was a radio producer you pretty much have to do your own marketing anyway when you're an author and then i started looking at how long the process was to work with certain kinds of publishers so i found a publisher who would for a small amount of money do the interior design the cover design and the ebook and the print book, soft softcover, hardcover, and then send it to Ingram, which is the world's largest distributor of books, so that bookstores and libraries and everybody else could order it. And they would send me quarterly statements and give me all the money, 100% of the money, from the sale of my book. And of course, that the printing the printer has to be paid the shipping people have to be paid but after that there's a you know a few dollars per book left for the author i would get all of that instead of waiting 2 years to have my book published and getting none of that because it takes a long time for you know an unknown author to get any kind of royalties off of their books, because the agent has to be paid, the publisher has to be paid, the printer has to be paid, the marketing people have to be paid. I mean, it's just, so the author ends up with like $1, and I was going to see that dollar in maybe 2026. (laughs) So I just decided to pay this small amount of money up front, have, have the publisher I found that I hired do all of the work, including the distribution, and then keep my money when I made it. And it's worked out really well.
1: I was going to ask you about that, because when I hear about different writers, and it's interesting, there are writers who will both publish traditionally and self-publish for different reasons. And when you hear the different reasons, it's often things like they get full control of the process, or they get to keep all the profits Or they don't have to deal with the gatekeepers. And you've just added a fourth category, which is time, the time element, the the speed at which you can get to publication.
0: Yeah. And another one of the issues is quality control. The publisher that I worked with is actually a nonprofit group of publishers, and they weren't just going to publish my book because I said I wanted to hire them to do that. They wanted to see the 30 pages and the proposal and and they wanted to see that I could write and they wanted to see that I had to sign a contract that said I would hire an editor and, you know, the whole thing. So that was appealing to me because it wasn't just somebody who would take my book as it was and just take my money to print it. They were distributors and they were interested in the quality.
1: I've seen that you are also recording the audiobook for this memoir. How's that been going?
0: Well, I'm not done yet because in the meantime I have two other audiobooks that people have hired me to record. So I have to finish those and one is like a three hundred and fifty page crime novel with, I don't know, thirty-five character voices or something. <laughs> so wow. that's that's been a very slow project. <laughs>
1: So as we've alluded to a few times in this episode, um, you and I know each other because uh, you're a former client of mine and also my audio producer, and you work magic when it comes to the quality of sound for my show. So I wanted to ask, what is one thing that authors could be doing when they come to interviews to sound better?
0: Get a good headset microphone. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or borrow one, or rent one, or whatever you have to do. Because if you try to talk into your computer or use a cheap mic, the sound is so bad, and it's difficult for people to listen to it. And one thing authors should know before they do an interview is that you might record in a good format, but then it gets it gets compressed in order to upload it and a lot of the quality in your voice gets taken out it's when when an mp3 file is compressed without getting too technical it removes some of the highs and lows and you've heard files online that just sound really tinny and and metallic and they're really hard to listen to anybody who's producing a podcast wants the best quality for their listeners So if an author wants to be listened to past about the first two minutes, they really want to get a good microphone.
1: Well, Shari, I want to thank you so much for coming on to the show today. It's been really, really fun getting to talk with you.
0: A total pleasure, Paul. And thank you for inviting me. And I'm going to work with you again (laughs) on another book. (laughs) Count on it.
1: Okay, I'm going to hold you to that. Thank you. You've been listening to my interview with author, musician, and producer, Shereen Newman. I'm Paul Zakrzewski. If you've enjoyed the show, then I hope you'll subscribe in Apple Podcasts. I'm always grateful for reviews and for sharing the show with friends. To get show notes and a transcript delivered to your inbox, please subscribe to my newsletter, The Book I Want to Write. It's at bookiwanttowrite.substack.com. Every week, I also publish short essays about writing mindset, developments in publishing, and more. If you're working on your own book you have to write, or you want to get started, maybe I can help. Find out more about me and my book coaching at bookiwanttowrite.substack.com. That's bookiwanttowrite.substack.com. And thanks for listening.